This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, we're about to learn the details of Australia's big submarine deal with the US and the UK. But on the eve of the announcement, one expert tells us the scale of the task ahead can't be underestimated. Also, during his annual speech to Congress, China's president vows to build a great wall of steel. We'll go to our correspondent in Taiwan. And caravan parks are increasingly becoming a long-term option for people looking for stable accommodation. But what happens to those who can't secure a spot? Andrew speaking. Okay, we're a long-term park, so it is minimum three months, but we just don't have anything available at the moment. They just wanted to see if we had any permanent accommodation. I actually know two people uh, who lived here that couldn't afford to live here anymore. One went to live in a car. Tomorrow, Australia is expected to announce an historic multi-billion dollar agreement to acquire nuclear submarines, first from the United States and then from the UK. On the eve of the announcement, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, met his UK counterpart, Rishi Sunak, in San Diego. They chatted about the AUKUS partnership as reporters watched on. Tomorrow will be a very big day and uh, AUKUS has been a lot of a lot of hard work, but it is in the three countries' interests. But the sum of the three is more than one plus one plus one in this country. And I think the cooperation that we've had is, is really exciting. We see that this is an investment in our capability, but at the same time, of course, we're investing in our relationships in the region yeah. as well. Yeah, no, well, we're very excited about it. It's about our commitment to the Pacific region, which even though it's geographically a long way from where we are, it's important in a way to demonstrate that commitment to the values that we both hold there as factories. The UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Some defence experts are speculating the nuclear-powered submarines could cost Australia as much as $200 billion. Maria Rost-Rubley is an Associate Professor of International Relations at Monash University. She says that figure doesn't include the many other expenses the country faces to safely operate the nuclear-powered subs. It's actually a huge undertaking because when you're dealing with nuclear submarines, there's an onshore ecosystem and the offshore ecosystem. You know, we're going to have much bigger boats, and so we need more crew. Um, We're going to need a lot of investment in training, in education. Right now, we have one nuclear engineering program in the country that graduates about five people a year. So obviously, that is not going to work if we're going to have five boats that I think the Virginia class has about 100. 130 um, submariners on it. Uh, You know, we're going to need radiological, environmental training. We're going to need, you know, these ports are going to be, have to handle nuclear material, radiological material. And so this is just a huge amount of investment that's going to be required. It's not just a defense project. This is a whole of country project. This is, Australia is going to be dedicating significant funds and um, national attention energy, education for the next several decades to produce these sort of 8 to 12 nuclear submarines.
How concerned are you that we just haven't got the people and the expertise to run well, the submarines? We we actually don't, and it is a risk. And in fact, my understanding is the Navy is now recruiting um, foreign um, uh, submariners, and I think it's just gone up recently. And essentially, they're recruiting serving or immediately ex-serving officers and sailors um, from Commonwealth countries. Uh, they have been already talking about scholarships, and there I I've seen some of the wordings of announcement for scholarships that are going to go into nuclear engineering. But the problem is, is that we're starting from such a small base. You can't just sort of train people because you need the lectures to do it, and you need the space to do it, you need the facilities to do it. There's no Australia will not have enough people to do it. I mean, there's no question. These are going to have to be co-crewed. And then what if there's an issue where, you know, the U.S. Um, is in a conflict with China and we have co-crewed subs and, you know, Australia, you know, may feel pressure from the U.S. to join any U.S. activities. And what do we do with co-crewed subs? Do you have any concerns that either the United States or the U.K. may be eventually unable to deliver what's agreed to tomorrow? This is a major concern, not just for myself, but for a lot of experts. First of all, in terms of actual provision of these five Virginia-class nuclear submarines, we know that U.S. shipyards are struggling to meet their schedules. Um, They have 60 nuclear boats that are planned, but they're not going to be completed on time. And so the fact that we're going to get five used ones, that means they're going to need five to replace those. Uh, How is that going to happen? And so certainly I, I hope that's the case. And Biden administration is apparently asking for a lot of extra money for the Navy coming through in, in his next budget. But he, Biden doesn't control it all. I mean, he's got to submit this to Congress. This plan essentially hooks us to the U.S. and the U.K. And if the U.S., for example, is unable to fulfill its part of the bargain, say because of extreme changes in domestic policy, then this whole plan collapses. What about safety issues? What what detail do you want to hear tomorrow about how the nuclear material is going to be handled on these boats? That is such an excellent question. The first thing I'd like to know is, will these nuclear submarines be using high-enriched uranium or low-enriched uranium? It's a critical detail. High-enriched uranium can be used for nuclear weapons. And in fact, depending on the design, there's usually enough highly-enriched uranium for about 30 nuclear weapons. And so that is much more dangerous to handle, and it's a lot more of a concern in terms of nuclear uh, proliferation risk and um, issues within the nuclear nonproliferation regime. If it's low enriched uranium, it is still uh, has to be handled very carefully. But for example, you know we have a, a research reactor at Anstow which has low enriched uranium, and we have a lot of training in that already. So that's I think a critical detail that everyone's going to be keeping an eye on. Maria Rost-Rubley is an Associate Professor of International Relations at Monash University. China's leader Xi Jinping has ended the annual political congress in Beijing by saying the nation must build up its military to make a great wall of steel for China's security. He spoke of historic bullying at the hands of Western colonial powers, alluding to the growing rivalry with the United States. Our East Asia correspondent Bill Bertels has been monitoring developments from Taipei. 
Bill, first off, what sort of tone did the president strike? Sam, a very nationalistic tone, which is not too unusual for Xi Jinping, but this was by his standards a relatively short speech. And right from the get-go, he decided to invoke a colonial bullying at the hands of foreign powers. He didn't directly make the comparison, but obviously he was uh, setting up things by talking about the current environment with uh, pressure, economic pressure and technological pressure from the US uh, and uh, other countries like Australia with AUKUS. He didn't mention any of these things. He didn't need to. Uh, Instead, he turned to history. Here's a bit of what he had to say. Since the modern time began, China was gradually reduced to a semi-colonial, semi-feudal society and suffered from bullying of the foreign powers. The Chinese nation has gone through a tremendous transformation that it has stood up grown rich and is becoming strong. Setting the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation into an irreversible historical course. And Bill, did you pick up any clues on China's intentions for Taiwan? Well, the first thing is when he talks about the great rejuvenation, that, among other things, is code for Beijing's takeover of Taiwan. Now, Xi Jinping, as he has said before, reiterated today that the great rejuvenation must be complete by the turn of this century, by 2049, which is the anniversary, a century of uh, communist power in China. But he also kind of sent a mixed message on one hand saying that China hopes for what it calls peaceful reunification. On the other hand, uh, not only uh, saying that Beijing will be resolute in opposing external interference, by which he means the United States primarily, uh, but also, too, that um, it's important for China to build up its military strength to safeguard its sovereignty, by which, of course, he also means sovereignty over Taiwan. This is the tone that Xi Jinping was striking. We should strengthen national defence and army modernisation, building the People's Army into a great wall of steel that effectively safeguards national security, sovereignty and development interests. We should actively promote the peaceful development of the relationship across the Taiwan Strait, resolutely oppose external interference and Taiwan independence separatist activities. And Bill, on the domestic front, though, China is facing some economic problems. Yeah, so there's a new deputy leader in China, Li Tiang, and he gave his first meet the press session today. He's nominally the premier of the state, but these days it's very much a one-man show of Xi Jinping. Now, he said that China's relatively modest GDP growth target of 5% this year won't be easy to achieve. He said that there is sluggish demand domestically in China. He said that the global economy 
he's not looking too flash. And he said that pressure from the United States, particularly the uh, restrictions on the export of advanced technology, things like semiconductors, uh, that that too will also make it harder for China to keep growing at a relatively high pace. So um, despite all the talk of the great rejuvenation and how wonderful China's leadership has been and the complete victory against the COVID pandemic, uh, there was also a bit of uh, realisation a bit of uh, realistic talk uh, that uh, actually China is facing some economic headwinds. Our East Asia correspondent, Bill Bertels. We're back home now and peak, peak health groups say the death of a teenager in Western Australia highlights the dire shortage of paediatricians across the country. The boy's mother says he took his own life last month, but would still be alive if he'd got the care he needed. Waiting times for paediatric treatment have blown out to more than a year in parts of Australia and experts agree children's lives are at risk. Isabel Masali reports. When Michelle Offer thinks of her son Jai, she remembers his smile. Oh, he was pretty amazing. He was the highlight of everybody's day. 14-year-old Jai Dyer took his own life last month and his mother is now sharing his story hoping it'll lead to change. Michelle says Jai was diagnosed with autism at age five and his GP later suspected he had ADHD. But getting a diagnosis and medication from a specialist was an extreme challenge, both in the state's southwest region and Perth. Oh, I just feel like I'd exhausted everything. There was nothing else I could do. I was at the end. I've, I tried every, every paediatrician around. I'd been ringing psychiatrists in Perth. Couldn't even get through, so I, I don't even know what else I could have done. The tragedy highlights long-held concerns about wait lists. In WA, the median wait time for paediatricians is 18 months and there are 6,000 kids on the wait list. It's a problem being seen across Australia. Dr James Best is a GP in regional New South Wales and the chair of the Child and Young Person Health Group at the Royal Australian College of GPs. The picture across the country for access to paediatricians is appalling. So we see situations like we've seen occur in WA, which of course is a terrible tragedy, uh, but I'm sure it is not an isolated situation where children and, and young people with uh, mental health conditions, with neurodevelopmental conditions, uh, are basically just having to wait and wait and wait. Dr Jacqueline Small says there's a lack of national data on wait times, but it's clear children are not accessing the help they need in a timely manner. She's a paediatrician and the president of the Royal Australian College of Physicians. There's a crisis. Many of my paediatricians are being inundated with really complex cases, children with very complex developmental and social and uh, mental health needs that are being referred to paediatricians. But paediatricians are having to close their books. They just can't keep up with the load and the demand. We know that the demand to see paediatricians for these types of conditions has been increasing over time. But just really there's been an overwhelming burden uh, as a result or and occurring through and after COVID. It's really been like a tsunami hitting our health system. The college has been pushing for a range of changes, including a national chief paediatrician and the full implementation of a national strategy for children's mental health and wellbeing. 
we really think that the uh, the health system needs to have a complete rethink. We need to reimagine how we deliver health services to children and their families with very complex needs. And we need to make sure that new models of care include the other services that are vital to the health and well-being of children, such as education systems, social systems and disability systems. Origin Executive Director and University of Melbourne Youth Mental Health Professor Patrick McGorry believes the tragedy highlights a range of issues. He says the whole system is under pressure and there's an over-reliance on paediatricians when it comes to mental health problems and young people. They're part of the, the response, absolutely. But um, a more holistic approach is required and usually it involves multidisciplinary services, multidisciplinary care, whether that's at a primary care level or secondary care level. And it's not just a matter of GPs or paediatricians, it's a, it's, a, it's a team-based approach that's needed. In a statement, WA Health Minister Amber Jade Sanderson extended condolences to the family of Jai Dyer. She went on to say it would be inappropriate to comment on his individual circumstances, but the government has implemented a number of programs to assist vulnerable children and families with appropriate support and timely care. Is Bill Masali reporting. And if you need help or you know someone who's struggling, Lifeline is a service you can call. The number is 13 11 14. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, can Australians afford the upfront costs of electric vehicles? It's kind of economically irrational to spend $20,000 extra upfront to start saving money on fuel. Like most of Australia, Victoria is in a rental accommodation crisis. Many cabin and caravan park owners in Melbourne's southeast say they're struggling to keep up with the demand for longer-term stays. Housing experts say the situation proves the state's desperate need for more social and affordable housing. This report from Oliver Gordon. Seaford Cabin Park, Andrew speaking. Cabin Park manager Andrew Wilson is fielding more calls like this than ever. Okay, we're a long-term park, so it is minimum three months, but we just don't have anything available at the moment. No problem at all. Bye. So you've just told someone that they can't stay. What was their situation? They just wanted to see if we had any permanent accommodation. Unfortunately, yeah, some of them are pretty, pretty short-lived, those phone calls. And uh, how many of those are you getting a day? Getting at least 10... 10 phone calls a day, very similar situation, just anything they get their hands on, just um, you're looking for some sort of long-term accommodation. The Seaford Cabin Park is a collection of small one-bedroom shacks, about 35 kilometres southeast of Melbourne's CBD. It used to be a place where people would stay for a few months while they sorted out longer-term accommodation. But Andrew Wilson says that's changing. July was the last one that's popped up. Have you ever gone that long without having a single vacancy? No. Normally we'd probably get one a month, but this is the longest we've, we've ever gone. Seaford Cabin Park resident Roisin Johnson has been in the park for 12 years. I was at risk. I was almost about to go on the streets myself um, because I was looking at you know, having nowhere else to go when I found this place. She's happy in her cabin, but is nervous about what would happen if the park ever closed down. I came here because uh, this was the only place I found that I could rent. Was that from an affordability perspective? Yes, yes, it was uh, because the, I, I couldn't afford anywhere else and I couldn't find anywhere else more, more particularly. 
and that was 12 years ago. In the last three years, Victoria's rental vacancy rate has plummeted from 2.2% to 0.8%. The squeeze is particularly tight in Melbourne's outer southeast, where the Seaford Cabin Park is. Eliza Owen is head of research at property data group CoreLogic. It essentially speaks to the fact that there's just not the supply out there, which is hard because even if you do have a relatively strong income, it can be hard just to find something to rent. She says the squeeze has pushed lower income households into a tight position. People on higher incomes might be moving to uh, what have historically been relatively affordable rental markets in order to to find something to live in, but that does end up cascading down and and pushing out lower-income households. And when lower-income households are squeezed and places like the Seaford Cabin Park have no vacancies, more people have to consider sleeping rough. 100% 100% it bottoms out into homelessness. Mayor Zizi is spokesperson for Everybody's Home, a national campaign to fix the housing crisis. We need to see real bans on unfair rent increases and rent caps. That's the only way to make the private rental market more affordable. We also need to see rules that end unfair evictions and we need to see those rules being enforced. PM asked the Victorian government what it was doing to make rents more affordable for low-income households. A spokesperson acknowledged the need for a boost to the state's social and affordable housing stocks and highlighted the fact the Andrews government has committed $5.3 billion to doing just that. Seaford Cabin Park resident Roisin Johnson says action is needed now to stop more people slipping through the cracks. I actually know two people who lived here that couldn't afford to live here anymore. One went to live in a car and the other one went to live in a rooming house that he wasn't happy about, but he couldn't even afford to live here. So with the ex- um, increase in um, costs of living um, yeah, and a decrease in properties, it, it's get, getting even, even more desperate every day for people. Cabin Park resident Rasheen Johnson ending that report from Oliver Gordon. A series of bank collapses in the United States is sparking concerns about global economic instability. Federal authorities in the US have taken the extraordinary step of guaranteeing billions of dollars in deposits. Experts here say Australia is largely unscathed so far, but some are worried about what's to come as the US continues to fight inflation. Matt Bamford has this report. Businesses across the Bay Area are just beginning to feel the, the collapse of several medium-sized U.S. banks in as many days has sent jitters through global markets. The biggest bank collapse since the 2008 financial crisis. Cryptocurrency-focused Silvergate was the first to fall, then Silicon Valley Bank, an institution popular with technology investors, leaving around 175 billion U.S. dollars in customer deposits in jeopardy. New York-based Signature Bank followed a day later. Its assets are around. 100 billion US dollars. As concerns grow, US President Joe Biden is under pressure to reveal more details. Mr. President, what was the banking crisis? Boarding Air Force One, he was peppered with questions. His administration has already leapt into action. Departments, including the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, taking the extraordinary step of guaranteeing deposits for Silicon Valley Bank customers. After some shaky trading, the move appears to have calmed global markets. But the episode has raised questions about why these rapid collapses occurred. What we're seeing is the weakest links starting to break at the end of a rate hike cycle. That's Roger Montgomery from Montgomery Investment Management. So in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, which is the one that's captured uh, all of the headlines, they were lending money to, uh, in many cases, profitless 
technology companies, what I call profitless prosperity companies, uh, and when interest rates started going up, what happened was the private equity industry uh, really just turned the spigot off to funding um, expansion of these businesses. So these profitless tech technology companies had been forced to dip into their bank balances, if you like, their deposits. But when investors realised, they quickly pulled their funds, leaving the bank exposed. At a time of rising interest rates, the independent financial advisor says these venture capital-focused institutions are vulnerable. When interest rates are at zero and there, you know, there really is no alternative other to invest in other things, riskier things, and so investors piled into private equity funds that were supporting the growth ambitions of profitless companies, particularly technology and healthcare and so on. But when interest rates start going up, guess what? It starts to look more attractive to have your money in the bank or in other safer securities. Uh, and so the, the desire to fund these profitless companies at ever-expanding multiples and uh, of revenue, for example, or ever-expanding prices – um, that appetite uh, quickly vaporises. Should we be worried in Australia? No, I don't think so. Uh, our banking system is not something that uh, our depositors need to worry about or investors need to worry about. Um, we've got a very, very robust banking system. The US, prior to the GFC, had about 8,000 banks. They now have about 5,000 banks. And we don't have that that sort of small regional banking system that go flies under the radar of regulators. David Bassanis is Chief Economist at BetaShares. If the response that we've seen today limits further contagion, I think uh, it will almost be, you know, business as usual. Um, so the, the policy response has been quick and forceful. And while Australia's banking system is insulated from this upheaval, concerns around rising inflation and a potential global recession remain. They've basically bailed out anyone with a bank deposit today. But what they haven't bailed out is bank shareholders, bondholders. And so, you know, bank vulnerability, I think, uh, to the increase in interest rates, you know, may well become an issue over the next few months. And so we may not have seen the end of the of the turmoil. You know, the regulators may have sort of, you know, won the battle, but there's still a war ahead to be waged. David Bassanese from BetaShares ending that report from Matt Bamford. Well, what's known as range anxiety is often cited as one of the big reasons Australians are hesitating about buying electric vehicles. But for many car hunters, price remains a major stumbling block too, with EVs and hybrid electric vehicles often selling for significantly more than their fossil fuel burning equivalents. And while the choice of makes and models available here is is expected to grow. Buyers are being warned not to expect any dramatic price reductions. Nick Grimm has more. If the queue to get into this trade show was any indication, as it snaked across two levels of the Sydney Convention Centre, there's no lack of interest in the future of electric vehicles. My criteria is it's got to be pretty, it's got to have a dog in it, and, uh, yeah, no, that's pretty much it. It's, it's more about the fact that um, petrol costs a lot and we want to go to energy. That We've got the solar power at home, so it's 
recharging value and that sort of thing? Um, we just wanted to check out the vehicles, see what's out there, what's available, especially when it comes to, you know, what's available for our family and what we can afford. Others who shelled out up to $60 a head to attend the fully charged event, just keen to take a good look at the new models on display, some from manufacturers that are still relative newcomers to the Australian car market. To me, there's a lot of people here, which is good. And when you look around, it's actually a lot of the elderly people. So that's showing that we're looking to the future as well, not just the young ones, but the elderly people are looking towards the future and what's best for the environment and what's best for them long term. Ross Durango is with the Electric Vehicle Council. I think here you're talking about people who are giving up a chunk of their weekend to come and look at electric cars. The people who are here are already thinking in the direction of maybe an electric car is my next car and may have questions about how to charge it at home or they might have questions about range, they might have questions about towing. This is an awesome place for them to come and see the cars and ask the questions of the people bringing them in. And it's amazing to see the enthusiasm that there is for people to actually embrace EV for the first time. Rick Waite is from MG Australia with a display showing off the carmaker's latest EVs to hit these shores. He knows range and price are two of the key considerations in the minds of those contemplating going electric. I'm probably biased when I answer the questions for you, but the reality is, is that uh, we deliver the best value EV in the market with the longest range for under $70,000. So value is always going to be one of the benchmarks of what we deliver. But with electric and hybrid electric vehicles selling at a higher price than the similar sized internal combustion models currently on the market, Consumers waiting for that price differential to shrink before making the transition may have to keep on waiting. John Cardigan is a motoring journalist who reviews cars and other vehicles on the website autoexpert.com. He argues the high cost and relatively short supply of lithium batteries will prevent major reductions in EV pricing. Electric cars certainly cheaper to run. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But it's kind of economically irrational to spend $20,000 extra up front to start saving money on fuel, given that you probably have to drive something like 120 to 160,000 kilometres before you break even on that basis. If you decide to buy an EV and run it, you'd want to be doing it for other more virtuous reasons than just saving money, I'd suggest. We'd want to be reducing fuel consumption and uh, reliance on overseas oil, and we want to be improving air quality in our cities. And all those are very worthwhile initiatives that you can take part in today, albeit at a price premium. Motoring expert John Cardigan, Nick Grimm with that report. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.